Saint Edith Stein once said, everywhere the need exists for maternal sympathy and help. Welcome to the 94th episode of Saint Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want everyone to remember that there is a need for empathy and love everywhere. And if we can be that source of empathy and love for someone we come across during our day, we will truly be doing the Lord's work. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. I received a request to talk about the topic of mental health therapy and spiritual direction that I thought would be worth discussing for a bit. How are they different? Does everyone need both? Do people talk about it more than people actually engage in it? Just to give a little context, here's an answer to the what's the difference part that I thought was really cool from Danae Ashley. A therapist is going to examine a spot on a leaf or a broken branch, emotional and mental issues, and work with you on how to heal those parts, while a spiritual director is going to focus on the wind blowing through the leaves and branches, God moving in each aspect of your life, including those broken places. I'm sure you would agree, given that distinction, that spiritual direction and mental health therapy could potentially overlap in what they might cover, and you'd be right. Here's a bit from spiritualdirection.com. In therapy, we may need to address some bad habits or patterns before one can move forward and successfully achieve their goals for the future. And more importantly, when setting significant goals, consulting the Holy Spirit and discerning God's will for one life through spiritual direction would be a very valuable, if not critical, step. In spiritual direction, it's not unusual that emotional patterns or fears can be obstacles to growth and holiness and may need therapeutic attention that is beyond the director's scope of expertise. For instance, someone suffering from severe anxiety or depression or from scrupulosity, a form of obsessive compulsive disorder, would benefit from psychotherapy to reduce their distress and expose and heal the root cause of their problem. In such a case, a working relationship between the spiritual director and the therapist with the client's permission and cooperation would be the optimal approach to give the client the best results. You know, if you're on Catholic Twitter or other social media platforms, you probably hear a lot about spiritual direction, people talking about some new insight they learned in spiritual direction, something helpful they discovered in spiritual direction, or perhaps how they wish spiritual direction was more available. That, of course, brings up the question in my mind, do most Catholics seek out and engage in spiritual direction? I'd never even really heard of it until I was an adult hearing about it on Twitter, and I don't really hear about it all that much in parish life. So what's going on here? I think it's important to consider that the data may be skewed when we're scrolling through social media. Perhaps we might see a higher percentage of Catholics engaged in spiritual direction than we would if we took a poll at our parish. And if we can keep that context, it might help us to feel like we're still doing okay even if we're not in spiritual direction. But how can we know if we need to reach out for a spiritual director or, as we've talked about many times on this podcast, to a therapist? More from spiritualdirection.com. If you're struggling with emotional pain and negative patterns of behavior in your life, dealing with depression or mood disorders, anxiety, addiction, or other diagnosable conditions, psychotherapy is your best option. Do you need advice sorting out your life and your relationships? Counseling would be the way to go. 
Are you trying to grow in your relationship with God and discern the movement of the Holy Spirit in your life? Then spiritual direction is what you should pursue. Keep in mind that each discipline is not mutually exclusive and you can participate in spiritual direction along with therapy. And remember that the Holy Spirit is living and active and can work through all of these modalities. So as we've talked about before, it never hurts to inquire about getting help from a therapist. And even going to see a therapist doesn't mean you're locked into a long-term treatment plan. So if you've ever thought about it, or if you've ever thought about trying to reach out for spiritual direction, I'd suggest going for it and feel free to let us know what the process of getting connected to a spiritual director or a therapist was like for you. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm going to introduce you to Blessed Stanley Rother. Born in 1935 in Oklahoma, Stanley was one of four children. He had two brothers and one sister who became a religious sister. Stanley was a strong youngster and really good at farming, but after completing high school, he decided he wanted to become a priest. He went to St. John's Seminary in Texas. He served as a sacristan, groundskeeper, bookbinder, plumber, and gardener. After almost six years, the seminary staff advised him to withdraw. He was later advised by a bishop to attend Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Maryland, which he did, and he was ordained by that bishop in 1963. He was the associate pastor at various places around Oklahoma, but was reassigned to a mission in the rural highlands of southwest Guatemala at his own request. He learned Spanish and the local language of the people there. He supported a radio station located on mission property, which transmitted daily lessons in language and mathematics. Stanley even went on to translate the entire New Testament into the local language and began celebrating mass in the language as well. We'll take the next bit from Wikipedia. Within the last year of his life, Rother saw the radio station smashed and its director murdered. His catechists and parishioners would disappear and later be found dead with their bodies, showing signs of being beaten and tortured. Rother knew of all of this when he returned to Guatemala in May of 1981. In December 1980, he had addressed uh, a letter to the faithful in Oklahoma and wrote about the violent situation. This is one of the reasons I have for staying in the face of physical harm. The shepherd cannot run at the first sign of danger, is what he wrote. At the beginning of 1981, Rother was warned that his name was on a death list of the right-wing death squads. He was number eight on the list at the time, and that he should leave Guatemala at once to remain alive. He did leave reluctantly, but returned in order to celebrate Easter with the people there. On the morning of July 28, 1981, just after midnight, shooters broke into Rother's church rectory and shot him twice in the head after a brief struggle. Rother was one of 10 priests murdered in Guatemala that year. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer. Blessed Stanley, our brother, you poured out your life in service and spilled your blood as a witness to the faithfulness of God's love. Those you loved so deeply and served so completely knew you to be their pastor and their priest interceding for them as their open door to the presence of Christ. Pray for us now and intercede on our behalf as we ask you to walk with us on our journey through life, that the redeeming presence of Jesus might touch us now and restore us to wholeness and peace. I ask in this time of need that your prayer accompany us. May the mercy of Christ echoed in your ministry and your martyrdom renew us and bring us the graces necessary to heal our brokenness, illuminate our darkness, and restore the losses in our lives that we may be finally one with you in praising God forever in heaven through Christ our Lord. Amen. 
And now, you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Jennifer gets us started. I know you've answered some questions about eating disorders, but would love to get more specific. How can Catholics and Overeaters Anonymous integrate our faith into the 12 steps? Let's start by joining in prayer together for everyone living with symptoms related to an eating disorder for peace, access to compassionate care, and a loving community around them. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Thank you so much for sending this question in, Jennifer. Let's start with a little context from the National Institute of Mental Health. There is a commonly held misconception that eating disorders are a lifestyle choice. Eating disorders are actually serious illnesses that are associated with severe disturbances in people's eating behaviors and related thoughts and emotions. Common eating disorders include anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. Symptoms of anorexia include extremely restricted eating, extreme thinness, emaciation, a relentless pursuit of thinness and unwillingness to maintain a normal or healthy weight, intense fear of gaining weight, and distorted body image, a self-esteem that is heavily influenced by the perception of body weight and shape, or a denial of the seriousness of low body weight. People with bulimia nervosa have recurrent and frequent episodes of eating unusually large amounts of food and feeling a lack of control over these episodes. This binge eating is followed by a behavior that compensates for the overeating, such as forced vomiting, excessive use of laxatives or diuretics, fasting, excessive exercise, or a combination of these behaviors. People with bulimia nervosa may be slightly underweight, normal weight, or overweight. And people with binge eating disorder lose control over his or her eating. Unlike bulimia nervosa, periods of binge eating are not followed by purging, excessive exercise, or fasting. As a result, people with binge eating disorder are often overweight or obese. Binge eating disorder is the most common eating disorder in the United States. So thanks be to God that there are effective evidence-based treatments for those of us living with eating disorders. And one additional way to get help is by engaging with a community of others who share our experience. You referenced Overeaters Anonymous, and there are others, but according to their website, Overeaters Anonymous is a community of people who support each other in order to recover from compulsive eating and food behaviors. So as with all of the various 12-step programs, there is most certainly a faith element, and as Catholics, we absolutely can integrate our faith into our 12-step communities and vice versa. Catholic Answers Magazine actually provides some context for this thought. The emphasis of 12-step programs has remained on personal conversion, a spiritual experience sought through working the 12 steps of recovery, the first of which is to admit that one is powerless to save oneself. Another important convergence between 12-step programs and the Catholic faith is the understanding of the person as a unity of body, mind, and soul. It is important to remember that 12-step programs themselves are fundamentally theistic. Okay, back to me. There are so many threads connecting our faith and 12-step programs, so many ways that we seek to give ourselves to our higher power and strive for redemption. Considering our Catholic prayer life, sacramental life, and view of the importance of community, I think 12-step programs line up quite nicely with our faith, and both can inform each other as we work toward recovery. 
Katie is up next. I've seen a lot of Catholics talk about the importance of confession and the relief they feel when they go. My history of trauma makes it difficult for me to be vulnerable, and vulnerability to me means weakness and openness to manipulation. It takes time for me to really trust people, and going to confession, therefore, is more of a chore or duty as a Catholic rather than a reconciliation with God. I don't get any relief from it, which leaves me extra anxious that I did something wrong. Do you have any tips on how to make a good confession when you're anxious? What are some questions you can ask a priest to see if they are a good confessor? Let's join together in prayer for Katie and everyone who finds confession to be anything but an experience of relief and comfort, that God's peace may flow into their hearts this very day. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Let me start by saying how brave you are to even be thinking about this question given all you've been through. Your strength is truly an inspiration. Next, I want to make sure that you know that you are not alone. I think social media has led us to thinking the things that we see when scrolling our phones are the things that most people feel, and if we don't feel that same way, something may be off with us. Are there people who feel a great sense of peace and relief on the way to confession, <laughs> fun while they're waiting in line for confession, and they feel great during and after confession? Sure, I'm sure that there are. But does that describe the vast majority of us? I have my doubts. Before I share some tips, I want to touch on you saying going to confession is more of a chore or duty uh, instead of a reconciliation with God. I don't get relief, which leaves me feeling extra anxious that I did something wrong. You are 100% not doing anything wrong. Our feelings in relation to confession are shaped by our experiences in life, our personalities, our experiences of priests and the church in general, and are often beyond our ability to control in the moment. So we aren't doing something wrong by having those feelings. Instead, we're actually doing something above and beyond, in my opinion. When we don't have those good feelings associated with a religious practice like prayer, confession, mass, etc., and we still do them out of a sense of love for God, even when we don't feel that love, we are truly truly becoming saints. We are pushing through all of our experiences, feelings, emotions, etc., and still meeting him as best we can, however that might be. And that's incredible, in my opinion. As for tips, I can only offer some things that have helped me. First, prepare. Try and find some time to actually come up with the things you need to confess. I find that when I just show up and try to confess off the top of my head, it's a terrible experience. Second, remember what confession is for. It's for confessing our sins, promising to try to do better, and receiving absolution. There's no need to provide context, get feedback, or anything like that. I've had some bad experiences in confession, and what I've learned is that I have a better experience if I just wait for the words of absolution and not really worry about all the other things the priest is saying uh, that may or may not be helpful based on the context of my life. Um, and, you know, maybe the priest doesn't just quite get it, what I'm trying to get across. So I'm just there for the absolution above anything else. And third, be okay with the feelings. I think uh, one thing we all have to work on is letting ourselves feel the feelings that come up and not placing a judgment on them. Feeling like confession is a chore or uncomfortable is okay. Nothing is wrong with us. It's not something we did. God doesn't only count it if it makes it feel nice and it's all okay. Okay. 
And last, if you feel like you need to take a break for confession, from confession for your own mental health and emotional well-being, I say do it. The church has a requirement for the frequency of confession, and according to Canon 989 of Canon Law, after having reached the age of discretion, each member of the faithful is obliged to confess faithfully his or her grave sins at least once a year. So take your time. God is patient. Be at peace and know that we are praying for you. Anonymous wraps us up. My wife and I had our first child seven months ago after an NFP method failure. We don't want to be abstinent forever, but we are afraid to take a chance with NFP. With ongoing postpartum depression and anxiety, it would be extremely difficult to accept another child. How do we think about mental illness, uh, marital harmony, and following the church's teaching for marriage? Well, let's start by joining in prayer for Anonymous and their family, everyone striving to live life in accordance with church teaching in the area of marriage and family, and for everyone experiencing postpartum depression that God may bring peace, consolation, and healing. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. I think it's important to start here by pointing out that you are not alone. Many of us are walking through a similar experience, difficulty with NFP and following or even understanding the church's teaching in this area, given all we go through in our day-to-day life, the repetitive anxiety it causes, and the care that we have for our spouse, especially in the context of postpartum depression, make it all so complicated. Sometimes I feel like shouting out to God, why do you want to make this all so difficult for us? What do you expect us to do? I also want to make sure to point out that the teaching of the church absolutely 100% leaves the issue of postponing pregnancy up to the couple. And I want to say that because there are often loud voices in Catholic circles that try to tell us that our reasons for not wanting to get pregnant at any given time are not serious enough or some nonsense like that. To put that issue to rest, I'll quote St. Paul VI's Humanae Vitae, paragraph 10, directly with regard to physical, economic, psychological, and social conditions. Responsible parenthood is exercised by those who prudently and generously decide to have more children and by those who, for serious reasons and with due respect to moral precepts, decide not to have additional children for either a certain or an indefinite period of time. With that being said, considering your specific question, how do we think about mental illness, marital harmony, and following the church's teaching for marriage, I'll say this. God wants us to be happy. God wants us to be at peace, and he wants to fill our hearts with his grace and his consolation. And God wants us to be saints and to help our spouse and our children become saints as well. All of that has to be our starting point. God doesn't want us to be miserable, so it's important to take care of our mental and emotional well-being as much as possible. It's important to work hard on our marriage first and foremost because they are the means by which we experience the love of God, share that love of God with our children, and the means by which we become holy. And we are called to follow the teachings of the church even when it's hard. So I would suggest 
finding a therapist you and your wife could discuss all of this with, helping them to understand the parts of the faith that are important and helping them to see all that you're trying to navigate. And I would suggest talking openly and honestly with a priest or religious sister that you trust to really have someone you could open up to without holding back because I think the perspective they might bring would be really helpful. Above all, remember that God loves you, loves your wife, and understands all of your thoughts and emotions better than you understand them yourself. God is patient, God is compassionate, and God is willing to meet you where you're at. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations. If you'd like me to address them in a future episode, I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on over there and support the cause. You can also head on over to the Ave Maria website to pre-order the St. Dymphna's Playbook book that's due out in November. Until next time, go easy on yourselves, take care of yourselves, and if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you, and so will St. Dymphna.